Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper. You can hear the Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI and also find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. It's a great way to get out the word about the show. Also like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. I'm Katie Halps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Gabe, my co-host, is Gabe underscore Pacheco. And our hashtag is KT Help Show. Letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. Make sure that you join our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, and that will give you access to bonus content, including our extended interview with today's guest, Mark Fleedner. Mark Fleedner, he is running as a write-in candidate for Manhattan District Attorney, and you can vote for him if you live in Manhattan. You can vote for him on November 7th as a write-in candidate. He's running because it has come to light that the current unopposed Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, declined to prosecute Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump's children, Ivanka and Donald Jr., and at the same time accepted money from their lawyers. So this is a lot of people outraged, including Mark Fleetner and including people who wanted Mark to run. Mark did run for Brooklyn DA, and he didn't win, but he ran a great grassroots campaign, and he was endorsed by Our Revolution. For the past 30 years, he's worked as a prosecutor and a civil rights lawyer. Now, you're definitely going to want to become Patreon subscribers because we play an extended interview with Mark, and he talks to us about what he learned running, some disappointing surprises he encountered about the LGBTQ community, um, of which he's part, his thoughts on the James Franco show Deuce, the controversy over his conviction of Officer Peter Leong and the controversy over the fact that one of the only NYPD officers convicted in recent memory in the killing of an unarmed black man was an Asian American and how Mark feels about that. Do you see my socks? So should I, should I, uh... I think it's great. I think it's like, this is what this is, right? Yeah, I agree, yeah. Okay, great. Great. Sure. Oh, take one. Uh, Katie Halper interview with Mark Fleetner. Take one. Cool. All right. Hi. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you, Katie. Yes. Thanks so much for coming. I'm really excited to be talking to Mark Fleetner, who is running against Cy Vance as a write-in candidate for the Manhattan DA. And you were just running for the Brooklyn DA's office. Can you talk to us about that race and how it even occurred to you to do that? Then we'll get into what you're doing now. Yes, sure thing. Uh, So I really am a career prosecutor slash career civil rights guy in the sense that I stepped away from the prosecutor's office a couple times, but most of my career has been as a prosecutor either in Brooklyn or in Monmouth County, New Jersey, which is actually where I grew up. And uh, I was most recently doing civil rights in the Brooklyn DA's office and had handled a case that was fairly well covered in in New York uh, City state and to a degree nationally because we were the first ones to get an indictment and a conviction on a situation where a police officer had killed an unarmed black man, in this case in one of our housing developments. It was a high girlie who was killed by Officer Peter Liang. It was a little bit nuanced because it was a reckless act as opposed to an intentional act, but we did it. And I felt that it was very important that we do so in in inaugurating a civil rights bureau, and I was the inaugural chief, that we say, this is about equality of justice. If a police officer breaks the law based on how the statute reads and based on the evidence, they will be treated the same way as everybody else. My problem came when after the successful investigation and prosecution, uh, the office decided to 
recommend a sentence that would not be afforded to anybody else, not to you or me, and they were convicted of manslaughter in the second degree, and offer a non-jail disposition. That was a real problem for me, and it was also a problem that the family was not engaged, consulted, even informed until after the media caught wind of it. And that just violated so many of my rules as a victim advocate, which is what I've been doing for 30 years. So I stepped away from the office then, and then I started to really have this opportunity maybe that I'd not had before, to incorporate all that I had come to as a, a reformer in my head, a criminal justice reformer, and start to see that no one, no prosecutor anywhere, had stepped up to the plate and run as somebody who was going to acknowledge that the system is broken, mm -hmm. that it needs to be really re-envisioned, uh, and, and that that was going to be the platform by which you would run. And um, progressive, but, but really more of a reformist. So that was why I was driven to run. We had this very weird set of history where Ken Thompson, who was the DA, passed away unexpectedly. And that the mantle was handed to his uh, second-in-command, a guy named Eric Gonzalez, that I just knew was a status quo guy. So that I was compelled to run. And it was, man, it was a fascinating learning experience because I'm not a politician, never have been, never really saw myself being, but I did know that this is a job that I thought I could do well. It was really sobering to see how the city system, the local political process works. And I'm going to even, I'm going to come out and say that the Democratic Party works, the current local Democratic Party at the New York City level. It is absolutely money driven. And so that for a guy like me, who really spent most of his career earning a paycheck every two weeks, as did those who I surrounded myself with, there was no ability to generate mass, uh, you know, contributions. And so on a small budget, we did what we had to do, got the word out, felt good about the something like 15,000 votes that we got, but was not successful. Well, I was just minding my own business and trying to work up some of the cases in my civil rights practice. And I was... Uh, sitting at a book launching for a new book called The End of Policing by a very great progressive uh, journalist named Alex Vitale. And then my phone started to blow up because it was the week that Cy Vance uh, had the worst week ever for him. Uh, the Weinstein story broke. Uh, the Trump Soho story broke, which means that it was his de declining to prosecute Donald Jr. and Ivanka for their fraud, uh, alleged fraud in the context of uh, trying to sell the Trump Soho. And, but more importantly, the fact that there was a direct line drawn between the failure to prosecute, the decline to prosecute, the contributions that were made. So everybody was agitated. Everybody was full on angry. And somebody that had followed me during the Brooklyn election said, I know a guy. And before asking me, put it out there. And then it just started to go crazy places. Sean King picking right. up on it was huge because then the following gets big. Sean King, who's a, um, a journalist and a big, huge social media following, was at the Daily News, is now at The Intercept. Who, who was the person who suggested that you run uh, right in? Uh, the person does not necessarily wish to be identified, you know, sure. uses a Twitter handle. It's uh, at show us your work. Oh, as right. in, like, I saw show that. Us that was right. your math exam or something, right. I assume. And uh, you'll see that's the origin. But I will say one thing, and I have no reason to doubt her. The uh, actor, uh, restaurateur Piper Parabo, I spoke with her on the phone the other day, and she's doing other great political work in L.A. She's one of these people that is uh, absolutely, you know, crazy politically involved post-November. 
for those of us who go back a little while, she was the lead in Coyote Ugly, which is oh, like sort of a seminal yeah, yeah, movie yeah, yeah, back yeah. in the day. Right. And then for four years, she, more recently, she was on a, a, I think it was a USA Today okay. series called Covert Affairs. Mm-hmm. And I guess she owns restaurants. Huh. And she said, I came up with the idea mm-hmm. independently. I was sitting with a friend of mine in a bar and we were hearing the van stories and my uh, friend works in public defense and we said, wait, that guy Mark. And uh, so there were at least a couple of different, but, but, but he was the, you know, the, the, the first step right. that I was aware of. So, and then what, what, how long did you think about it when you saw it? Were you like, okay, let's do it? I mean, that was my immediate gut reaction. Uh, nobody asked my opinion, although it was that <laughs> night that uh, I got together with a tiny little team and we tweeted out, have at it. Now, I will say, that in the first 24 hours, we believed that a Brooklyn resident would be eligible to serve as Manhattan DA. And then, because we got some confusing information from the city BOE, Board of Elections, when we called the state Board of Elections within 24 hours, we found out that on election day, in order to be able to serve, I needed to be a Manhattan resident. Well, I am now. Where'd so you, there's a lot that happened. I'm, I, we're living in, in Stuyvesant Town. Nice. Moved into Stuyvesant Town is a perfect fit for... Again, the 87-year-old dad, the rescue dog, the just the kind of folks we are, and I like the location. It's fun. Mark talks to me about his experience prosecuting Peter Leong. Peter Leong was an NYPD officer who shot and killed Akai Gurley, who was 28. The shooting occurred in 2014 in the Pink Houses development in East New York, Brooklyn. And it was one of the rare cases where an officer was convicted of killing someone in the line of duty. And Mark explains the difference between an intentional and reckless death. An intentional act is, is what we tend to more think of. And unfortunately, it is more consistent with the videos that we've seen on TV where, remember the one in, in, in was it North Carolina or South Carolina, where we absolutely saw the cop blast this guy in the back right. as he was running away. Clearly, his intent was to kill that person. In, in the Peter Liang matter, it was never our belief that he intended to kill this young man. But what happened was recklessness under the law means that you, uh, you do something that is, uh, shows an extreme indifference for the value of human life and, and you engage in conduct that's not intentional, but we, we define it as reckless under the law. But it's a very high standard. And what we did was we pieced together a case and we just we went where the evidence took us. But this is a young man that had been out of the police academy for just about a year. And in the police academy, they go crazy to their credit, although there's a lot of other things I would criticize about you never put your finger anywhere near the trigger unless you have an intent to shoot. And we went through all of the training and many, many different things that he did to violate the training. If he'd followed the training, Akai Gurley would be alive. So this was the reckless act. And then, unfortunately, he spent the critical minutes after the shooting basically getting together with his buddy, his partner, and trying to figure out how they could cover their tracks. So instead of literally trying to save uh, Kai's life, as, as, as his, uh, his companion he was with that night was trying to get instructions over the phone on how to, how to save his life. So could, do you think it, he could have been saved had they been? Actually, I asked the ME that, at, uh, the, one, the woman who did the autopsy, uh, and, and she said no, he probably couldn't have because of where the injury was. It was unbelievably uh, tragic in the sense that the bullet went into a wall. He shot, the, the officer shot into a completely dark stairwell. 11 o'clock at night, 
plenty of people can certainly go through that stairwell. Unfortunately, in the housing development, too many of them are not having operating lights. The elevators don't work. They use the stairs. It ricocheted off a wall and right into a Kai girlie's um, heart, basically. Oh my God. He ran down the stairs because he was afraid uh, for, a, for a few steps and then oh. collapsed on a landing a couple of floors down. But even if he couldn't have been saved, that shows the kind of, what, the recklessness on the part of the police officer who should have prioritized saving his life right. over, that or was trying really, to save his right. life, right, over And we also charge him with, uh, really, yeah, a failure to, to engage in, you know, his, his con- you know, his required conduct as a police officer. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty gruesome. And we had the 911 call, mm-hmm. and, and, and you could hear the whole thing play out in, in uh, real time. Very compelling, very sad. So why was that prosecuted? Why was he charged and, pro- and prosecuted and convicted? And why aren't people who do intentional, uh, who commit intentional murder, is that what it is? Is it murder when it's in the... Right. That, would, that would, under New York law, yeah. that would be a murder in the second degree. That's such a great question, and, and it's hard to come up with an answer, but I do have a pretty strong feeling about where you start answering that question, and it's this. And I'm going to contrast it directly with the Eric Garner case, as a matter of fact. A district attorney, a prosecutor, if if they're called something else in a different jurisdiction, presents a case to the grand jury, hopefully based on a really objective, careful investigation, and they present the evidence of a case that they understand that case to be, and they get the indictment that they put the case in for, uh, as long as the grand jury is willing to listen carefully and objectively themselves. That's what we did here. Uh, I cannot fathom, and I, this is just personal opinion, but I cannot fathom that a, a grand jury on another side of a, little, of a bridge in New York City could have objectively heard the evidence uh, and seen some of the evidence that we've seen of how Eric Garner died, about how he asked for help, about how he made it so clear that he was in distress and not returned an indictment unless the way that the case was presented to a grand jury was intended to reach a certain result. And I think that overwhelmingly, where we've seen those results throughout the country, that's where it starts. So it's a lack of, so either they don't bring it to the grand jury, they don't indict in the first place. Either they, 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 they close the investigation without any action, or they present the case as they choose, right. without even putting any judgment on it. Were you like in the courtroom? You're the, the oh yes. You're the attorney oh, yes. doing the yeah. It was a trial team, but I was you know intricately involved. Yes, I was there okay. the whole time. It was incredibly intense. Uh, when talk about strange combinations of people. When Curtis Sliwa yeah. recently endorsed me for the Manhattan Eight DA run, he told me, and I didn't even realize it, that he'd been in the courtroom on five or six days. It was so kind of crazy and pa- crowded that I was focused on the work and. Uh, didn't know that until he said it the other day. And so what was it like when you heard the the um, the verdict? It was it was extraordinary. I mean, I've had those experiences in my life. Sometimes the visceral reaction was in a case that nobody was paying attention to, but I knew what it meant to the family and what it meant to me and also the system. But in this case, there were so many eyes on it, and it was about something really important, and it was an unprecedented you know, success in that sense. It was very powerful. And it was unprecedented because it was the first convict. What was the? We were, yeah, I mean, I, many, many years ago, there may have been convictions for these police cases, but this was in and around the time that, that police shootings were something that had become a really intense part of the uh, public consciousness. 
and it was the first time that there was that somebody got to hear the word guilty right. in a public trial in a decade at least. Right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So okay, so you decide what what was the t- t- like what was the process you what did you feel just going back to the verdict like did you expect the guilty verdict what what was the first thing that went through your head when you heard it uh, the first thing that went through my head was that it was it was historic and important that actually was like wow we actually got here uh, I wasn't surprised in that moment in the sense that you do tend to see where a jury is focusing during their uh, deliberation process and in this case they struggled they spent so much time distinguishing between the different options that they had. Reckless conduct versus, for example, uh, negligent conduct, which is where you do something that, uh, I don't want to get too lower, right? It's, it's a lower standard of, of evidence, but the reckless went to this depraved indifference for you know human life, the value of human life. And they asked that it be presented on a board to them several times, that they be reread the charge on those issues, and they were very, very carefully doing the work, so my sense is that they were on to the place that uh, we had seen the case when we originally investigated it. And did you have a visceral response? I've been known to tear up. Uh, m- uh, the only time that I did that maybe for an instant was when I turned around and looked at his family to just see that, and, and you know, and that's why, okay, so when I look at his family in those moments and I see all that this means uh, on, the narratives of their son's life, their own lives, all of these things. And then I have a concern weeks later that we have failed them. My visceral reaction was just as strong then because I remembered those faces in that instant. And uh, they're indelibly imprinted in my mind just like many other faces over the years. And you got to see it all the way through. And so what was that visceral response, the one second one that you're describing I, I was angry I was angry and and I was particularly angry because I was the person that was responsible for communication with the family and I had the family I had the mother who works on a military base in Florida sitting at the phone uh, waiting for the right time to get a call from the district attorney telling her not asking her for input but telling her what the verdict or what, excuse me what the sentencing recommendation would be and before she got that phone call, it was on the media. And that, that made me feel that despite my efforts that, that I had failed them, although they, they, oh, they all, you know, that mother specifically endorsed me as well. There were several members of the Akai Gurley family that endorsed me, but um, it, was, it was anger. Th- this, to me, this is the system breaking down. And it's got to, can't happen again. Okay, you get, the convi- you get the guilty verdict, and then, when do you find out about the sentencing recommendation? Well, I was called, the whole trial team was called to a meeting, um, and the, my, the description of what the basis for the meeting was for was to hear about what we thought the recommendation should be. So I spent a lot of time with the statute. Uh, I was very aware that we had to take an extraordinary step from the statute and make a special finding in order to treat him differently. And I looked at the criteria that you're supposed to use for making that decision, and I didn't think they were there. And so I had prepared uh, basically my argument to the district attorney that I thought he should get a limited, uh, because of his lack of prior record and all that, jail sentence. Again, what you or I would get. And um, there was another member of the trial team that I had spoken with beforehand who concurred with me, but I made the presentation. And then uh, the third member of our trial team disagreed and thought it should be a non-jail sentence. My clear sense 
was that a decision had already been made and that this was uh, to a degree lip service and uh, I wasn't the person to make the decision and that's actually something I've pretty bluntly said is that's why I ran for DA because I wanted to be the person to make the decision and make the decision based on what I believe to be the right standards. And that was Thompson who made the yep. decision? And why do you think he made that decision? Uh, I, th I think that it was, and, and, I, and I certainly do not mean to, to sound like I'm being disrespectful to somebody that's not here mm -hmm. to answer that question themselves, but I think it was a calculation that a lot of different elements of the community could, be sat could get a measure of justice. So often that's how the justice system works. But in this case, I disagreed with the calculation. And um, I will say, to put it in a, in a full context, that during the course of my debates and forums with him, Eric Gonzalez told members of the audience who were very agitated about that decision that Mr. Thompson had preyed on it. And I believe that. I know he was a very deeply uh, religious mm. man. Uh, so I, you know, I can't speak to that, but uh, it just, you know, I just fundamentally disagreed. Okay, so you resign, right? Yep, resign. Um, what, what, what date are we talking about right now? Uh, June 10th of 2016, just, just last year. Okay, and so what do you do between then and deciding to run for Brooklyn DA? I got some civil rights cases and some criminal defense cases from friends and colleagues and just people that knew of my work. And I, there's some very meaningful work there, and I just began to develop them. Uh, but it's, uh, it's scary out there in the world on your own. And then I have to be honest with you that, so that would, if that was June, and I spent July and August and September developing that limited practice, it was November that I really started to think seriously about running because it was clear that this Eric Gonzalez was going to be running. And from that point forward, I needed to split my time, at least split my time, between being a professional campaigner and a uh, civil rights attorney. And that's tough. So there uh, hasn't been a whole lot of income to the, to, to the Fleener coffers in the last year, but that's something that the whole family knew we were getting into. And uh, it was actually pretty cool when we had a family meeting and uh, everybody, including my 87-year-old dad who lives with my husband and I, and my husband, there's a little anecdote I'm going to give you that, it, that, that if, you don't, if you don't mind. Of course. Um, we talked about, gee, you know, my, my husband Steve was saying, uh, what if this person runs, who's very politically powerful, ideas about who would run? What if this person runs? And I said to him one morning, I think I'd still want my voice to be heard about this reformer issue. And I got back from work that night. And he was off to another city because he works all over the place. And Your there husband. was a, yeah. And there was a note on my pillow that said, your voice will be heard, which okay. I still have. It's, um, it's all wrinkled now, but I'm going to keep that. Got to laminate it. Put it in a, I a folder. I so. will the crinkles give that great I know, character. but it'll, it'll get too crinkled. It'll disappear. Right. It'll disintegrate. Okay. You got the crinkle in there. Things now you put it do. in an album. I'm yeah. not going to think about that until November 8th. Okay, that's I've got fair. some other things that's on my That's fine, mind. yeah. Some laundry to do. Some folding. I wanted my particular viewpoint to be out there to inform the conversation. Right. So that was where I was coming. So he from. was saying, is it is it worth it if it if if someone right. else got it? Yeah. Because it's you know we've asked a lot of all of us, and and I'm so grateful that I have that kind of buy. And I think I don't think anybody can do this kind of thing run run for something that has a, a, a significant degree of, of profile to it uh, and time required unless the family's bought in. Um, what did your father and your kids say? 
they said we're in. Um, my my daughter is somebody that was getting ready to go to college, so it, it, she's you know she she really she was in on her way out the door. You know, uh, my son is uh, an extraordinary uh, documentary filmmaker who happens to live in Brooklyn, so he was full on in from the beginning because we share the same values about these things, and it was actually his community that was going to be impacted, and he's. Uh, He's a great partner in this. And then my dad, well, here's an interesting story. My dad is a Republican for life, but not anymore. He became a Democrat so he could vote for his son because he believed he was running for the right reasons. Uh, and uh, that happened at the age of 87. Wow. Is he a Trump Republican? No, he is not. Now I talk to Mark about the Cy Vance case. So this was, just to get background, this woman's name was... Ambra Batilana Gutierrez. Right. And she told the police that he groped her without her consent in his Tribeca office. She told them that day, or she told them right away, and then she went undercover, basically, right? And with a, with a tape recorder yeah. and got him on tape. And on the tape, he, she says to him, why did you do that? Why he touched her breast the day before? And he says, I'm used to that. And she says, you're used to that? He goes, yes, I won't do it again. Yesterday, you touched my Weinstein was the one that I had the strongest visceral reaction to because uh, I actually went to law school to become a sexual assault victim advocate. I took a course in college. You know how there's that course mm -hmm. for some of us? Uh, a, somebody very dear to me said you got to take this course it's called dealing with sexual assault this is undergrad or law school undergrad it was in the school of nursing because victim advocacy wasn't even a thing this is the mid 80s i took it i was the only guy in the class it was incredibly informative about all the means throughout history that men have used sexual assault to degrade women keep them from power obviously traumatized them and so i veered what i was studying from journalism oh. um, and then that was the plan and when they recruited people from george washington university to come to brooklyn da's office i came and then i started doing that work right away so back in the day we tried all of these cases and be clear that under new york law the testimony of one witness is absolutely enough if believed and found credible beyond a reasonable doubt to convict somebody we tried many cases based on that. We charged, charged and tried many cases based on that. Some of them were prostitutes back in the 80s, or that's how they were referred to sure. back then. Sex now workers, yeah. Sex workers. That's, so he had the account of a woman who not only, you know, quote unquote, did the right thing by societal standards, which means calling the police and reporting it right away. And we know there are many reasons sure. why women can't and don't right away. And, uh, and then... She took that extraordinary step of working with them the next day. Um, the recording is chilling to listen to. Don't tell me it doesn't have evidentiary value. It's ridiculous. You hear him asserting his power, referencing to her his power, referencing to the fact that everybody in the hotel knows him. Just sit with me. Don't embarrass me in the hotel. I'm here all the time. Please I know, sit with me. but I, I don't promise. want to. Please sit there. Please. No, I can't. Go to the 
just wants to do this really quickly. He's very aggressive with it. It's very powerful at, as a supplement to her account. And then, and this is the thing that always bugs me, we know that the Weinstein stories were out there. And certainly they were out there in the power circles uh, as recently as, you know, I mean, as long ago as the time that this, this case was uh, being evaluated. You can present evidence of other uncharged crimes if somebody is showing their intent. How many women are there out there who, where Weinstein's intent was to intentionally touch them? So the fact, this is a, this is a cowardly decision. And then when you look at the money being exchanged, uh, it all becomes clear that we are talking about what I've been referring to as, you know, we, we use the term tale of two cities. Uh, Bill de Blasio, I think, used that when he was running four years ago. This is a tale of two courtrooms, man. There are people that get access to, uh, to district attorneys and get the benefits of their power to result in uh, not being charged, uh, investigations being closed, and then there's the rest of us. It's not okay. So to get a, a conviction or to charge someone with that, you have to prove that they touch the person for the purpose of gratifying sexual desire? Exactly. So, so it's all about his state of mind, but look at all the pieces of evidence we have to establish a state of mind in addition to her telling the jury that clearly based on the way it happened to me, it was for the purpose of sexual Right. I guess they were talking about her potentially being a lingerie model, and he asked her if her breasts were natural or augmented. And so I guess they're trying to suggest that somehow it was more, it wasn't for sexual gratification, it was like a point of information or something. Right. So wouldn't you like to be on a jury who had the opportunity to evaluate whether that story was ridiculous sure. or not? Right, right. This is one of those cases where it's like a dream case in some ways, right? Well, I mean, it's certainly a lot better than cases that are tried in good faith. And let us not forget that we need to look at this decision in the context of the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case right. from a few, for a few years yeah. ago. Same thing. Leaked discrediting of the victim. She's powerless. She's a maid. She's he, an Im immigrant from... Right. He embodies yeah. power. And uh, what He was happened? the IMF chief, right? Former yeah. head of the IMF. Right. And, um, and, you know, there was the, diplom the diplomatic issues right. and all of that. But the plain and simple fact is that's on Cy Vance's watch, too. And, and I will say that despite the efforts of an extraordinary victim advocates at the Manhattan DA's office that I've known for years, there is a reputation in the Manhattan DA's office for actually re-victimizing women mm. when they come forward by sitting them down and saying, look, you're going to be subject to this, 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 and this. You don't really want to do this, do you? Have a nice day. Right. How much of that is to cover their own asses so that they don't fail? They don't oh. not get a conviction? Um, well, sometimes it's to cover the asses of those that are accused. Oh, right. But certainly it, it's, look, there is this mentality in prosecutors' offices. You need to get to trial and you need to win those trials at all costs. I lost plenty of sexual assault trials back in the day. I also won plenty of sexual assault trials. I never regretted taking those cases to trial. Those women were heard, those children were heard, and the jury had an opportunity to evaluate whether we established beyond a reasonable doubt. And I honored their decision. Give them the chance to make right. that decision. And then the Donald Trump? Yeah, and, you know, an interesting connection between the two is, so his explanation for why he didn't proceed with the Weinstein case is that my experts, my staff told me not to. Well, the thing that drives me nuts about the Trump Soho case, we'll call it, is that in an unusual move, his experts, his investigative attorneys that had worked on that investigation for months and months, all admitted to the press that they advised him that he should charge uh, Donald Jr. And, and Ivanka. 
So this was his independence decision, and in that decision, he was going against them. His logic, it's just, right. it's just not so working. So it's not even a consistent pattern. So, but what's the common denominator between them? The money? Well, it's the power, power it's the yeah. innate power, and the money. Donald Trump's attorney was very generous, uh, I think multiple times, as was Weinstein generous multiple times. The allegation, well, they would have been, the investigation was into fraud. It's, it's a little nuanced, but anybody that's bought a piece of New York City property would get it. When you um, are thinking about buying into a condo or something, the amount of other investors that are there to help you pay the maintenance fees and et cetera, all the financial obligations of, of the, the entity, need to know how many people have already bought in. Apparently, the allegation is that uh, Don Jr. and Ivanka were trying to get their stories straight because they had fudged. Uh, lied about how many people had bought in, which is inducing people to buy that wouldn't have uh, perhaps done so if they'd had the accurate information. It's a classic financial crime. Just reading from Andrea Bernstein at New Yorker. In the spring of 2012, Donald Trump's two eldest children, Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr., found themselves in a precarious legal position. For two years, prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office had been building a criminal case against them for misleading prospective buyers of units in the Trump Soho Hotel and condo development that was failing to sell. Despite the best efforts of the siblings' defense team, the case had not gone away, and indictment seemed like a real possibility. The evidence included emails from the Trumps making clear that they were aware they were using inflated figures about how well the condos were selling to lure buyers. And then uh, I believe that Vance's, you know, some part of what he said was, well, a lie is not necessarily fraud. But it sounds like there was more than just the lie. It sounds like there was a reason for the, the lie to result in a financial benefit to them. That becomes criminal. Right. And the thing is, in Brooklyn, I didn't have a lot of defendants who were rich and powerful. This is, this is the place in the world where the rich and powerful play and work. If you are not going to prosecute the rich and powerful, then there's a complete inequity of justice. And it's, it's contrary to, to what the criminal justice system should be about. Now, Mark and I talk about the types of cases he prosecuted when he was working for the Brooklyn DA. One of the police officers that, we, that I successfully prosecuted was a, a police officer who was the first one to try to restrain a man who they were placing under arrest because they thought they saw him throw a marijuana blunt away during a neighborhood picnic. And so, and he was a little bit resistant. There's about ultimately about five guys that restrain him. So he's on the bottom of the pile. This officer steps away. You see him walk down the block as if he's trying to control his anger that he had to work so hard to get this guy in cuffs. And then you see him on a video that somebody took with their phone, thank goodness, basically say, no, you know what? Walk back and stomp on his head. And caused, a, thank goodness, a minor injury, but uh, he was convicted of assault in the third degree, a misdemeanor. That's what it was, though, and we need to hold these officers accountable. And the other case that was... Why was only a misdemeanor? Assault in the third degree, causing physical injury, which is not anything real serious, with an intent, that's, that's so what So had he killed him, it would have been... Well, he killed him, it would have been a murder. Even if it was unintentional? Uh, oh, no, but it was intentional. Okay. Yeah, I would I think that if you... Again, the debate would be, sure. when you stomp on somebody's head, do you intend for them to die, or do you intend to injure them? Right. But... Uh, yeah. Wow. You ever that's seen a policeman's boot? You know. No, I mean that's he's yeah. really lucky that guy. within being unlucky. He is lucky. Yeah, that's he is lucky. Yeah. And the other case that can the guy like that go back on the force? Uh, that uh, officer lost his job as a result of the conviction. So let's talk about that. That's why holding police right. accountable is so important. 
I'm all for my my colleague Alex Vitale saying we have to end policing, but until we do, sure. In the meantime, this accountability yeah. has right. a role. Yeah, how many people who we see kill people, how many police who wind up killing people, do we read about they had complaints, they had this, that, the other, right. and nothing was done? Exactly. I mean, I feel like often the police force higher-ups have blood on their hands because they didn't do anything about this person. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand why there isn't more accountability taken. Part of the problem with that is the way that our Civilian Complaint Review Board is run. That's a whole nother no. show for you sometime, yeah. which would actually be a really interesting topic. You should know there's a the group getting together this idea for legislation for the CCRB to be elected people, mm. not just appointed. Oh, yeah, so they're because accountable. Because then the citizens are represented. Right. Anything that has a... A citizen voice in it, I'm all for. And the transgender woman who was, yeah, was she killed? or uh, She w she uh, suffered an extraordinarily serious uh, traumatic brain injury. She was walking in Bushwick, minding her own business, being the proud trans woman that she is, and two uh, males decided they didn't like the looks of it. One of them picked up a plexiglass 2x4 that he found just in garbage and lobbed it at her head like he was a professional baseball pitcher uh and and you see her drop in a very great oh, someone video, filmed that too grainy video this actually happened to be curious. video that was uh street you know a street camera um and but it just showed you know it, it's grainy but uh, she drops right away when i first saw her in the hospital she had a what can only be described as a hole in mm. one half of her brain. They needed to take her brain tissue. The damage was so bad that they needed to take her brain tissue for a period of time and put it in her thigh no. because th so that it could, that's a place where, where it could replenish. She literally had a hole in her head. Then w after the brain tissue had healed, they put it back in, and of course she's had all of this brain reconstruction. She has lasting uh, brain injury, but... God bless her, man. She's she's hanging in there. She testified about what she remembered, and she's she's plugging along. But, can she walk? Um, she can walk. It's really, it's about certain perception issues, certain memory issues, but it's actually miraculous when, like I said, I told you, I, I saw a woman who was in an induced coma at that time because she was missing part of her brain, and it wasn't until days after I first saw her that uh, she was taken out of the coma but when i saw her i never imagined that she would be walking and talking that's to me. really both of these people i mean they had terrible luck and that they were the victims of violent crimes but within that that's like insanely amazing yeah yeah i mean i, I guess that's what makes somebody able to do the work that i've done for as long as i do because yeah. of those stories and those people they're they live inside you nobody asks to be brought into the criminal justice system on either side it's daunting, it's confusing, and if you have somebody that explains to you what's happening and gives you some agency, particularly where you were the victim, and this is about your life, they are unbelievably, almost embarrassingly appreciative because they're not given that agency enough by professionals. That's what a district attorney needs to do, among many other things that we've talked about. What would you do as a Manhattan DA? What kind of pro reforms would you make if yeah. you won? Th well, thanks for asking. That's that was what drove me to run for DA uh, across the other side of the bridge in the first place. Uh, starting with bail, I am adamant that um, the use of cash bail is not only nonsensical; it does not mean that people will come to court. That it's basically a property tax 
I want to not only talk to the legislators in Albany about eliminating cash bail, but never have my district attorneys ask for bail on anything where we've made a determination that we wouldn't be seeking a, a significant jail sentence down the line. So there's that. Some people don't realize how disgusting the bail system is and how people will be will plead guilty to things even though they're not guilty just to not have to pay, pay the... Sure. So, so let's say you've got a young person of color who is picked up for... Uh, I don't know, some turnstile offense, plus then they checked him and he had a gravity knife in his pocket, which is always something that is, uh, th that's another thing that I would take off the list of things that should be prosecuted because people use them for work, etc. cetera. Uh, and so they've got this list of charges. They charge them as harshly as they can. It goes before a judge and the prosecutor will ask for $500 bail at which point that young person, if they have any family or resources, will reach out to their aunt or their church or whatever to come up with 500 bucks, which is not gonna do anything to ensure their appearance back in court. If they don't have that money, if they are the kind of people that just want to get this over with and get on with their lives, they will end up pleading guilty to something they absolutely didn't do because they want to get out of jail, which by the way, is usually Rikers. That's, you know, obviously a horrifying place to be. And then it gets worse because if they don't make the bail initially, then the standards by which they can ask for the bail to be reviewed are, reviewed are very stringent, and that means they sit and they sit and they sit. And uh, what happens, and it just happened, you know, recently that a 911 call, the defense attorney says, this is going to exonerate my client. What happens when that is finally produced by the prosecutor months and months and months later? They've become institutionalized or, God forbid, gotten harmed in Rikers, and they were innocent all along. Why? Because they were kept there on a cash bail that they could not raise. That's why I call it a, profit, uh, a poverty tax. I am adamant that um, any prosecutors under my leadership not ask for a cash bail where it's not a case where we would be asking for significant jail time on that case. Which brings me to the screening of the cases in the beginning. I'm going to overhaul the way that we screen them to make sure that they're not overcharged, to make sure there are no constitutional rights violations, to make sure the police officer's account of what happened at the early screening process is accurate and credible, and, uh, and never overcharge. And everywhere possible. No ripping people off. Just yeah. kidding. Overcharge as oh, in overcharge. Charge. Got it, yeah, got yeah, it, got yeah. it. Sorry. Couldn't but the other thing is, it's like every case should be looked at to say what drove the criminal conduct, what can be done constructive to make sure that this person never gets back into the system, and by the way, we're all safer when they're through the system. Is it mental health? Let's deal with it. Is it substance abuse? Let's deal with it. Is it poverty? Let's do what we can to deal with it. That's not the approach that's being taken now. So we really are talking about this constant focus on where's the equity, where is administration of justice, so that we are all having access to it instead of just the rich and powerful. And uh, that was the basis for my original vision. And sex work? I, I will not prosecute sex workers. I don't think that that is something that is a priority for the, uh, the community. And I think that very often those that are actually doing the work are actually being trafficked and being you know disenfranchised in a lot of different ways they need assistance for the most part um, and if they don't need assistance it's just not the kind of thing that should be prosecuted it's just not in our value system today let's take all of these victimless low-level crimes stop wasting time and energy on them 
and put the attention on the crimes where there are victims that are hurt for life, whether it's financially or, heaven forbid, through homicide or sexual assault or something like that. I mean, you, as you've worked on sexual assault cases, but to me, I've always thought that it makes no sense to that sex, crime, sex, sex work should not be illegal because, you know, you have this whole debate among feminists, whether it's empowering or, or degrading. And to me, it doesn't really matter either way. If you, it seems to me like if you make something legal, then you're going to be that much more likely to seek help if someone's abusing you. Like, why would a sex worker go seek help from if she's being abused or attacked if, she, if it's illegal? It, it doesn't make any sense. It, again, it comes from this this you know, patrician establishment yeah. that was designed to keep the disenfranchised right. still disenfranchised so that white, straight men could rule the world. Right. I, I hate to be blunt about it, but that's the bottom line. Yeah, and it's, there's so many th- jobs that are problem. I mean, we sh- if, if, process- if sex work is illegal, we should ban, make boxing illegal. Yeah, oh my you goodness. Know, that's, uh, how that about uh, football? Football, yeah. Right? Or predator- whatever, predatory lending or, you know, I may not think it's a job I would want to do, but since when do we not believe in organizing workers around jobs that right. we don't want to do? Right, exactly. Or would you want your boyfriend to go to prostitutes? They don't say sex workers, generally, the people making this argument. But I'm like, no, but I also wouldn't want a boyfriend being in the Young Republicans. Right. Shouldn't be illegal. Let's talk about how people can vote for you. Ah, thank you. Okay, yeah. So what do people do? People say, you know what? I'm one of those weird people who doesn't like a DA who uh, takes money from Harvey Weinstein and decides not to to charge him or takes money from Trump's lawyers and decides not to charge uh, his kids. If you're one of those weirdos, how do do you vote for... Yeah, uh, I love those weirdos. It's not scary and it's not hard. You're going to look at your ballot and you're going to follow your eye. Your eye is going to follow down to the line that says Manhattan District Attorney. And of course, uh, right on the left where it says that, it says Democrat Cy Vance. But that's okay. All you got to do is go over to the far right where there's a blank. Not ideologically, just physically. <laughs> Whoa, amen. And um, so, and it says right in candidate, it's got one of those little bubbles that you have to fill in with your pen because that's what the, um, the uh, machine will take. And then you have to legibly and preferably accurately write my name, which is M-A-R-C-F, that's F like in Frank, L-I-E, D like in David, N-E-R. Obviously, you can write it on your palm before you go in. You can hold it on your phone before you go in. There's plenty of ways to not mess it up. The BOE is obviously supposed to count a vote that clearly is meant to be mine, and it's just not a confusion of I before E type sure, thing. Right. But obviously, the best way for us to do it is to get it right. It's really pretty easy, and it is, I'm going to think, a powerful act. I, I won't have the benefit of it because I wasn't here in time to register in Manhattan. Oh, I can't yeah. vote for myself. But I would think that if I were here and I didn't just say I'm incensed that I don't have a choice, but I'm sitting it out and, and I'm not going to vote for him. But if I actually found somebody with my values and my vision and I wrote their name in, I think it's so patriotic and so like cool. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people that are feeling the same way. Yeah, there's really no reason not to do it. It's not like he's run. It's not like Cy Vance is running against someone who's way worse than him, and they're going to jeopardize his chances. No, to, I no mean, there's risk. no reason. There's no right. risk. Yeah. What would you have to do to win? You'd have to get more write-ins, and he got people. I'd have to get more votes, and that means maybe we could do votes. it. Why not? So let's see how we need to come up with a mnemonic device. Um, okay, mark with a C. That's easy, right? Mark with a C. C for champion. 
Okay. Okay. Mark. We've used champion. courage too. We courage. Do a little work. Courage champion. And then Fleener. Uh, let's Ugh. see. What do we have for that? Flied is not the past tense of to fly, unfortunately. Let's see. Um, I played with this. It's tough. Um, f- um, family lives. What can we do? Flowers, lilies, indigos. Why don't we invite your listeners? Yeah, to, to come up with a good mnemonic, right? Come up right? with it and let us know. Yeah, and we'll churn out some flyers before. Election yeah, day. but it's Mark with a C at the end, and then Fleedner, F L I E D N E R. That's F as in Frank, L as in Larry, I as in India, E as in England, D as in Daniel, N as in Nancy, E as in Eric, R as in right, right, and that's November seventh. Vote on November seventh, and Mark uh, on Twitter is at Mark for DA at M A R C F O R D A. Great. And what else can people do if they want to help out? Oh my goodness, um, they can uh, they can actually send an email that'll come to me and others uh, at Mark M A R C dot J dot which is F L I E D N E R at Gmail. And we'll put you to use either running around on the day of the election, putting out some flyers the weekend before, which is this coming weekend. We're calling, um, thank you, Mark Up Manhattan. And take all different PDFs that we sent out there, run them off however you want to. This is super duper grassroots and spread them all over Manhattan. Uh, We've got pens. Spread the word. Just spread the word. hear the rest of our interview with Mark Fleedner, make sure you join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Halper Show.